Hi, I'm your guest host, Manika Raman-Wilms, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. A hand signal widely shared on TikTok recently caught the world's attention after a missing 16-year-old girl was rescued in Kentucky. A passing driver saw her riding with an older man, said she looked like she was in danger, and called 911. The teen had been trying to flag down passing cars with the hand signal, which was created as a way for people, usually in domestic abuse situations, to silently ask for help. But not all signals are so clear. For us, like just as humans, as neighbors, family members, friends, and coworkers, there are so many kind of more subtle signals that we need to be on the lookout for. That's Elizabeth Renzetti, columnist and feature writer at The Globe. She often covers issues around gender-based violence. Elizabeth is on the show to talk about the different forms this abuse can take and how we can become more aware of the signs that are often missed. This is The Decibel. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for being here. Hi, Manika. It's great to join you here today. So to start, can you describe what this hand signal actually looks like? Right. So this distress signal was uh, formulated in the beginning of the pandemic in about April 2020 by the Canadian Women's Foundation. And what it is, is you put your hand up, palm out, you tuck your thumb into the palm, and then you fold your fingers over the thumb. And anybody who knows or, uh, you know, has sort of recognizes the symbol understands that you are reaching out for help of some kind. And at the Canadian Women's Foundation, they realized early on what happens during disasters, whether they're environmental or economic or any of these things, is that gendered violence increases. And it increases for, you know, a couple of reasons. One, because they're trapped with their abusers. And second, because tensions are just heightened within the house, right? Everybody's on edge and maybe people have lost their jobs or whatever. So they realized that they needed a signal that could be used very discreetly, that they needed a specific signal that was going to help in that uh, situation. So I'm really proud of Canada. <laughs> Canada does really, really good work in this field. I think researchers and, uh, you know, frontline workers and everyone. Hmm. Okay. You recently wrote a piece about this incident in Kentucky. Why, why was this so significant? Well, we know on some level that abuse of women in particular, and um, in fact, gender diverse people is uh, on the upswing. But I think this, because it was so weird and had kind of this Nancy Drew aspect to it, really caught the world's attention, which is a really good thing, because it's letting people know how prevalent this problem is. And the girl in the car wasn't even really using it in a way that it was intended to be used initially. Like this was for, you know, to alert people who are suffering intimate partner violence or or domestic violence. But it can be used, obviously, in all these different situations to alert that, you know, something bad is going on and I need help. So it's really interesting that it caught the world's attention and so many more people now know about this symbol. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot of people listening might not have been aware that, that this existed. How popular actually is this hand signal? Well, the Canadian Women's Foundation did some research after it had been out for a while and found that, you know, actually a a good proportion of Canadians did recognize the symbol. And I think it's partly because it has had a big uptake 
on TikTok, right? So you have this medium, this platform that's uh, used by really creative young people, and it has kind of spread there. And this is the other thing. it's They designed it to be a visual symbol because they knew in the pandemic that people are being trapped at home with their abusers and also that we're using Zoom and video calls much more. Um, and we tend to think of abuse, especially when we're thinking of intimate partner violence or domestic violence, as a problem that affects a certain demographic, right? Older women, generally we think of women who are married and things like that, whereas the research shows us that one of the most vulnerable groups is women aged 18 to 24. Mm -hmm. And uh, one study in the United States said that a third of college women had said they were in an abusive relationship. And those are just people who report. This is a hugely, hugely underreported issue. So I think the idea that we're now realizing that young women also are subject and can be subject to a wide range of abuses and that also domestic abuse is not at all restricted to physical violence. Hmm. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more then, I guess. What are the other ways that, that it can take shape? There is a huge spectrum of other very devastating behaviors that include emotional violence, sexual, psychological, financial abuse, controlling behaviors. Digital abuse is a huge kind of worry now, especially for younger women. So that would be when your partner is controlling you through technology, let's say through your phone or through an app or through even like, you know, devices in your smart home, things like that. So abuse is actually this huge spectrum. And we really only have recognized and I think understand the very most severe top of that abuse. We've been talking pretty much about one specific signal, but are there any other signals out there, things that exist elsewhere in the world that, that people use as well? So the more official signals are in France, I think, in Spain as well. You could go into a pharmacy and say a, a word or a coded phrase to a pharmacist to let the pharmacist know that you needed help. Um, in Britain, they had a black dot on, you could put on your palm. There's talk in the States of women calling 911 and pretending to order a pizza. There's a lot of debate among researchers about things like that. Like, could it be even more dangerous if the woman gets caught doing them? So those are the kind of official signals. But for us, like just as humans, as neighbors, family members, friends and coworkers, there are so many kind of more subtle signals that we need to be on the lookout for. And some of those would include, let's say it's your friend. Does your friend seem afraid around their partner? Are they being belittled all the time by their partner? Are they being yelled at all the time? Do they not have access to their money for some reason? Do they not have access to their phone for some reason? Are they constantly having to check in with their partner? Does their partner seem jealous or controlling in any way? Does your friend seem more withdrawn than normal, more nervous than normal? Is she being isolated from her family and friends? These are all signals that we should all be looking at. And then the next step, of course, is what do you do <laughs> when you are mm -hmm. aware of these signals? Mm -hmm. And and so what, what can you do once we're aware of these signals? So now that these, these are out there in the world and people are starting to recognize them, what is, what is that next step? 
Yeah. So it's very interesting. The Canadian Women's Foundation is now going to start a campaign, I think, in the next few weeks around what are the next steps. So the most important thing, I think, is that you reach out in a, in a safe and non-judgmental way to your, let's say it's your friend, to your friend and let that person know that they are not alone and that there is help if they want help. And also don't ever say, you know, why are you staying? It's a really completely non-helpful thing to say to somebody who is in um, that situation. Another really important thing I think to do is, and I did this recently, is to take a bystander intervention course. I took one, uh, it was online, it was one hour long, and it was offered by Julie Lalonde, who's a wonderful um, educator based in Ottawa, and through the Hollaback organization, which is an anti-harassment organization. Because I think like all of us, we freeze, you know, when we're confronted with situations like this, whether it's we see harassment on the street or whether like we think maybe our friend is in trouble, but we don't know what to do. So it's completely natural to feel uh, embarrassed, to feel confused, to feel uncertain, like frozen kind of what do I do? So in this bystander intervention course, I learned about, I think there were five D's, they call them, uh, distract, delegate, document, delay, and direct. So these are all kind of strategies you can use if you see somebody in public, you know, or not, maybe it's even in private, maybe it's at a party or something. If you see somebody in trouble and you don't know what to do, these are like really concrete strategies of ways that you can help that person without, in a safe way, so you're not um, putting yourself or that person in further danger. Yeah, because I think a lot of us, it can be difficult and uncomfortable to to know if you see something out in the world, if you should do something or how to do something. So I guess having those strategies is kind of a way to prepare yourself. Can I ask, after taking that course, do you feel like you're better prepared now to intervene in a situation where, where someone may need help? I do, I think, because I have found myself in situations in the past, and I've even written about this, where I, I, I remember once... I was on. A, I was living in London, working in London. And I was on the top deck of a bus, and I was very pregnant, so I felt vulnerable anyway, like even more vulnerable. And um, there was a, a young woman being verbally harassed by a group of young men, uh, sort of at the front of the bus, and nobody was doing anything. And I remember like just being cloaked in like shame and fear and anxiety, not knowing what to do. And I told the bus driver, but I don't even know if he did anything and I I didn't know what to do. I think now I would have a better idea. Like I might go up to her and say, um, you know, hey, Michelle, it's been so long since I've seen you. How are you doing? And even though her name obviously isn't Michelle, (laughs) she would know that I was an ally and that I was trying to help her. Do we have a sense of, of how common this issue of intimate partner violence is in, in Canada in order to, to kind of, I guess, gauge the situation? Yes, we do. It's hugely underreported. So like that's the caveat, right? Most of it goes completely unreported. So what we do know, like multiply that by a lot. The United Nations calls domestic violence the shadow pandemic and says that one woman in three will be affected by some kind of sexual or physical violence during her life, it's probably 
even higher than that. And a couple of things have happened during the pandemic. At the beginning, shelters were noticing that in domestic and crisis lines, people weren't calling as much. And that's obviously because if you're stuck in a house with somebody who is hurting you, you can't, it's very difficult sometimes to reach out. But then later in the pandemic, they noticed that the calls skyrocketed, like the assaulted um, women's helpline, I think calls rose like 100%. It was just a huge, huge number. And the other thing that shelter workers are discovering is that the severity of the violence has really increased. So we're looking at like more severe physical injuries, broken bones, Mm. strangulation, things like that. So absolutely, it's a crisis. And the problem is we keep treating it as a crisis and not as a chronic condition that requires like a whole of society response, which it does. It requires governments and education and healthcare to all work on this together. And we need to do so much more work around prevention, which is the one area where uh, I think we've really fallen down is around the area of prevention. We're very good now at are pretty good at like helping people who are in crisis, but we're very bad at preventing the problem from starting in the first place. Hmm. And the kind of hand signals that we've been talking about, this is, I mean, this is helping someone who's already in a crisis situation, but in, in some ways, I guess this spreading awareness, can that help the preventative side at all? Do you see, do you see any kind of way that that could help in that respect? Oh, absolutely, I do. I think the fact that we're talking about this, I mean, one of the problems about, you know, this realm of violence is that it does not get talked about nearly enough because it is cloaked in shame and people don't understand it and they don't understand the spectrum of it. So yes, I think 100%, this could be an opportunity for you to sit down with your kids, which I have actually done, you know, like and say like, oh, did you see this? Did you read about this? And then to talk to your your children about healthy relationships about, you know, being in touch with their emotions, about non-toxic ways of expressing their emotions, about being respectful and kind to each other and what a good relationship looks like. So I would say, I think this is a really wonderful kind of hinge or pivot moment to start thinking about how we address the problem further upstream. Elizabeth, thank you so much for, for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much, Manika. That's it for today. I'm Manika Raman-Wilms. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and Angela Pachenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Elizabeth Renzetti. You can find more of her work at theglobeandmail.com. You can also email us at thedecibel at globeandmail.com. If you want to reach me, I'm on Twitter at ManikaRW. And if you haven't already, please follow The Decibel wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll talk to you tomorrow.